Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you today. His name is Dr. Michael J. Kruger. Dr. Kruger, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well. Great to be on the show. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for agreeing to do this. I'm sure you've got a busy schedule, and so I appreciate you taking the uh, time out of your day to do this. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, before we get into some questions about the Gospels and the New Testament, that sort of stuff, I thought it might be helpful if you uh, gave a brief introduction. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm the uh, president and Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that's a mouthful. Been here about 18, 19 years. And uh, so I both teach New Testament and also am the president of the campus. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that with us. And uh, if you don't mind sharing, uh, how is it that you became a Christian? I always love to hear people's testimony. And as yeah. well uh, as well as how did you become interested in, in uh, New Testament studies? Yeah, well, I grew up with Christian parents in a Christian home, uh, was converted at a young age. And I'm thankful to have grown up in a context of people who believed the Bible and believed the Word of God. Um, my interest in this field actually began uh, in my time at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And m many might know, if they know my background, that uh, I had Bart Ehrman as a professor when I was an undergraduate. And, uh, you know, that was quite the challenge for any 18-year-old to get bombarded with all the different sure. questions about the transmission and development of the New Testament canon and so on. But that really, you know, got me interested in the field, and that led me to find answers, that led me to do more research, and eventually led me to where I am today. Very cool. Thank you for sharing, sir. I, I as well, I have a, a deep interest in the New Testament studies and stuff like that, and uh, I may have Bart Ehrman to thank as well, though I wasn't a student of his, but <laughs> I have watched a lot of his debates and things like that, and as a young Christian, anyway, uh, they were very challenging to me and really got me into the text as well as into some of the scholarship. Um, so I'm very interested to uh, hear from you as well as you know any New Testament scholar, obviously. Um, but uh, one thing that interests me a lot is the dating of the Gospels. And, um, you know, there's some difference of opinions, um, Bart Ehrman types to the more conservative types. But uh, how do we go about dating the Gospels? And uh, which side of this conversation do you kind of come down on? Do you come down on earlier dating and, and why so, or later dating and why so? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, there's, there's a fairly widespread consensus now about the date of the Gospels, uh, with a little bit of tweaking here and there. Uh, I don't think the tweaking here and there matters a whole lot for our sense of the reliability of the gospel. So the standard paradigm now is that John was written last, probably in the 80s or 90s, Matthew and Luke probably in the 70s or 80s, and Mark right around 70. Uh, I tend to take a little bit of an earlier date. I think certainly John was in the 80s or 90s. I think there's good reasons to believe Matthew and Luke were pre-70. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I think that if Mark was used by Matthew and Luke, that puts him even in the 50s. Sure. Uh, you know, how much is at stake there? I don't think a ton. Um, I suppose it depends on whether you think it rules out traditional authors or not. Um, I think the case for the traditional authorship of the Gospels is quite good. Um, but, uh, you know, the dating thing pretty much is within 20 or 30 years of each other, and everybody puts them in the first century. Sure, yeah. I think uh, within that first century is a, a pretty good consensus, and it's kind of the most important thing, uh, at least mm -hmm. from my perspective anyway. I'm not the scholar. But uh, it seems to me that a lot of the dating of the gospel has to do with the uh, the, the fall of Jerusalem and the temple and the destruction of oh, the yeah. temple and Jesus' prediction of that. Uh, mm -hmm. How much? How much weight is is that really the crux of the the dating of the Gospels at or past AD seventy? 
And is there anything else that they, uh, any other main arguments for after 70 other than the destruction of yeah, the temple? Or is that um, pretty much it? That, that's certainly a core reason. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a very clear passage like the Olivet Discourse predicting the destruction of the temple, and few doubt that's what it's referring to, you obviously don't want to date that before 8070 unless you have to concede that a real prophecy was made and fulfilled. And so most secular scholars think it was just retroactively put on Jesus's lips as a prophecy and therefore written after 70 AD. Yeah, that, that paradigm plays a major role in dating. There's other things that feature into the late date. Um, part of what features into the late date is, is the belief that the traditionally assigned authors are not the real authors. Mm-hmm. Um, that these are anonymous books written by who knows who, probably in the Greco-Roman world, and we have no reason to think Therefore, that we would push them back in the time period closer to Jesus because they're written by people who probably never knew Jesus. Sure. So that that factors into the discussion as well. Yeah, it's kind of a holistic thing when you consider all things. That's yeah. kind of seems how they come at that. Uh, well, you brought it up twice now. Let's go into the date, uh, the authorship of the Gospels. Yeah. Um, what is the case, um, or how does Bart Ehrman and others formulate their case that the uh, Gospels were originally anonymous? Yeah, well, several things go into his case. Uh, one is is the text of the Gospels themselves. Um, we don't have the names of the Gospels in the actual text. The texts are what we call formally anonymous, meaning that in the actual wording of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it doesn't say that I, John, wrote this or I, Luke, wrote this. So he argues that, hey, you know, there's no reason to think these Gospels were written by the names that were later attached to them. He argues that the, the, the titles were added late. There's no reason to give them any credibility. And then he goes and makes arguments that, that these don't sound like books written by first century Jews or at least uh, Palestinian Jews and so on. I, I find those arguments problematic on multiple levels. You know, when asked about how we know who wrote the Gospels, I typically focus on two major arguments on why we think the Gospels were written by their traditional names. Uh, one is patristic testimony. Um, I tell people often, who has a better shot at knowing who wrote John? a modern scholar or someone who lived close to John's time. Um, And uh, the the argument for John's authorship is actually incredibly solid based on Mm -hmm. patristic testimony. I mean, we have Irenaeus in the second century telling us that John wrote John, undoubtedly got his information from Polycarp, who mentored Irenaeus, and Polycarp knew John himself. Um, That has to be given its due weight as an example. The other argument I give is just the gospel titles. Um, We don't have time to fully unpack this now, but... There's tremendously good reasons to think the titles were were either very early or maybe even original to the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, they're uniform. They're consistent. We don't have a single example of one of our Gospels having another title other than the ones attached to it. Right. Um, that seems remarkable if it was uh, a, an anonymous Gospel that circulated without a name for generations. Yeah, it, it, and I've made this point to my audience, at least hopefully they'll remember, that it seems to me at least, and uh, you're the scholar, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in order to make the argument that they were originally anonymous, you at least at some level would have to make an argument from silence, because we don't have any um, uh, anonymous manuscripts that I'm aware of, is that correct? Yeah, any manuscript that we have access to the title page, which we don't always have, right? Um, all have titles, and all have the same titles. So we don't have a single example of an anonymous gospel, and we don't have a single example of a title of a gospel that doesn't match what we know. 
So uh, one of the uh, points about your blog and your book that, uh, that I really like and I like to read and study about outside of the dating of the Gospels like we were just talking about is uh, how the, the books uh, of the, the New Testament were formulated into one canon. And so how did the 27 books that we have uh, in the New Testament become canonical? Uh, what was the process by which that happened? You know, sometimes out here in YouTube land you hear some crazy conspiracies Constantine, whatever, I don't, you know, whatever you're going to hear. But uh, how did these uh, books become canonical? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the sort of popular level theories out there. There's lots of them. Uh, many people think that the canon was a late idea, probably fourth or fifth century, imposed upon books written for an entirely other purpose. Maybe Constantine was the mastermind, maybe not. But regardless, people have this idea that the idea of a New Testament canon is something that's constructed by the later church. I, I've written extensively to show that I don't think that paradigm is very helpful at all. There's a number of things that swim against it. Uh, one thing I think in particular is that we have evidence that there was a core canon in circulation by the middle of the second century, which would have been fairly extensive. Probably 22 out of our 27 books seem to be fairly well established uh, by that time period. Um, that didn't happen because of a church council or because of a vote, or because of a political move. It seems to be this intuitive, organic, natural growth within early Christianity. Um, that tells you that Christians weren't as confused about which books to read as one might think, that they seem to have a fairly clear grasp of which ones were handed down to them from the apostles, and maybe which weren't. Now, undoubtedly, the edges of the canon were still fuzzy at this point. There were some things to work out about some of the smaller books, and that took a while. Um, probably wasn't until 4th or 5th century that the dust had settled on all that, but we really had a canon quite early. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea that the canon was late and after the fact and sort of forced on the church just doesn't work. Yeah, so you think the main argument against this is that there are 2nd century um, canons, actually, and uh, what, is the, what is the title of that canon from the 2nd century you were referencing? Well, it depends what you mean by canon. Canon is just a word that refers to the collection of books. So sure, we have so. a list from the 2nd century. By that, you, if you mean list, uh, okay, the, yes. Sorry, excuse me. The Praetorian Fragment from the 2nd yes. century lists about 22 out of 27. Yeah, that's but what I was trying have, to think of. Uh, patristic testimony like Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Theophilus of Antioch, all seem to have a fairly similar canon, um, yeah. all about the same time. Yeah, very cool. Uh, so how do you come to the belief, and this is more of a theological question, I suppose, but how do you come to the belief that these 27 books are God-inspired? Uh, not just that they were the original ones recognized, but that they're actually inspired uh, by God. Yeah. Well, that's a large question, isn't it? And one yeah, that yeah. I'm sure we can't fully unpack here. Um, you know, there's different ways to map out uh, the belief that these are the right books and that they come from God. One, one, one does have to do with authorship. Um, you know, when you think about why should I believe that when someone writes that they write for God, well, I've got to have a reason to think they write for God. Um, just any, any, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry that decides to write a book doesn't mean I should regard it as God. But the earliest Christians had good reasons to think these books were from God because they were written by either apostles or they contained what is clearly apostolic teaching, and the apostles were given special authority by Christ to speak for him and to be his mouthpiece. So if an early Christian got a hold of a book from an apostle, there's an inherent authority in that book um, just by virtue of who the author is. And so why would I think that's from God? Because I think the apostle speaks for, for Christ and represents him in terms of his words. Another thing I think we can look to in a book to know is from God is the, is the nature of the book, its character, its attributes, its qualities. There's a longer discussion behind this, but I write in my book, Canon Revisited, that I think books have some self-authenticating qualities about them, that, that the divine qualities of books can be, can be observed by people with the spirit that can see such things. 
Um, you know, the skeptic will look at that and, and laugh and say, oh, yeah, you, 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 you claim to find qualities there that we don't see. Uh, but there is a sense in which many Christians have, have come to believe these books are from God because they simply read them. Mm-hmm. And they realize there's something wonderful, harmonious, beautiful, excellent about the content of these books that points to Christ and that they recognize they're from God. And there is an intuitive spiritual dimension to that that uh, many people label as subjectivism, but doesn't need to be so. Um, the, the, the Christian claim is that there's objective qualities that you, you, you see by the help of the Holy Spirit. So those are some, some ways that we know a book is from God, and I think Christians have thought that for generations. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that often arises around this question of canon uh, is that of the apocryphal, and it always seems to pop up around Easter and Christmas. I'm sure that's mm-hmm. no coincidence for book sales and things like that, but uh, especially with the, the Gospel of Peter and other things like that. But uh, why, why are the apocryphal not considered canonical? Yeah, so when you look at a, a, a collection of books like the New Testament, there's what's called the apocryphal New Testament writings, or just apocryphal writings. It's the word apocryphal just means hidden, and it refers to books that seem to hover on the edges of the canon but never made it in. Um, and this is books famously like the Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Peter, um, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Mary, um, these sorts of books. And so people read these books and think, hey, why not these? These seem pretty good to me, and uh, why didn't they make it in? Um, well, actually, the, the, the evidence for why they didn't make it in is pretty extensive. Um, the primary reason they didn't make it into the canon is that they had no credible apostolic connections. In other words, all those apocryphal texts are dated to the 2nd century or later, with no reason to think they either written by an apostle or a direct apostolic friend. Um, and for that reason, the early church said, hey, you know, we're not going to treat these books with the same authority as other books by virtue of the fact that they're late and don't have any credible apostolic links. There's other reasons they were rejected, too. The content uh, is often bizarre, um, embellished, um, and then theologically off the roadmap for what early Christians were already believing and affirming by this time period. And so there's a sense in which it didn't match the current sense of what Orthodox beliefs were. So, you know, I think apocryphal writings like Thomas and Peter are a curious uh, anomaly within, within early Christianity, and I'm sure some people read them and found them to be helpful, and maybe even some groups uh, receive them as Scripture, but there's no reason to think they had a real real spot in the canon. Yeah, I think the the fact that they, they it couldn't even possibly have been written by an apostle or a friend of the apostle pretty much rules them out. Um, but uh, they because of that, they're undoubtedly uh, pseudonym, I can't pronounce words very well, they're pseudonyms, they're, they, they pretend to be written by one of the apostles or somebody like that, it's called the Gospel of Peter, though obviously it couldn't have been written by Peter. Yeah, they're pseudon- it's called pseudonymous works. Yeah, um, so pseudonymous. That's it. That's the, that's that's um, yeah, the ten dollar word I was trying to pronounce. Sorts of work, sorts of works in early Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some people think that um, some of the the uh, books of the New Testament that made it into the canon are also pseudonymous, like some of Paul's right. uh, uh, pastoral letters and things like that. What? Why do? Why do people think that? And um, I'm I'm just presupposing that you don't actually think that. So maybe why do you not think that? Yeah, I mean, this is a common argument. Um, they argue that, look, I mean, we, we have in our in our New Testaments, so the argument goes, forgeries, books that pretend to be written by someone they're not written by. And it's Paul's letters are top of the list here, which includes the pastoral letters, but also books like Ephesians, um, Colossians, First Thessalonians, and so on. Um, the reasons for that are multidimensional. M- most of the time, it's it's linguistic arguments that in those books, there's 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 vocabulary and, and phraseology and grammar that Paul doesn't use in any other place, and therefore it couldn't have been written by him. Sometimes they, they, they notice that 
that those books use repeated phrases from other true books of Paul, and therefore they think that the author's just kind of copying from true letters of Paul to make him sound like Paul. Um, I find both those arguments unpersuasive in the end. I, I think it's hard to know what literary range an author has and what the extent of their vocabulary is, and trying to map out what an author could and couldn't write based on style is extremely subjective. Um, moreover, I mean, Paul was known to reuse his material um, and to use material that he recycled over and over again. So there's a sense in which if there's overlap in the letters, that shouldn't surprise us that much. He used the same material multiple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move on to a, a couple of other questions before we get to the bonus segment. Uh, one that I meant to bring up earlier whenever uh, we were discussing Ehrman and some of his stuff was this question of manuscript variants that always gets brought up. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm just using Ehrman because he's the most popular and he's made the biggest deal about these variants. But essentially there's 200,000 to 400,000 uh, different manuscript variants in all the manuscripts that we have. Um, and this seems to frighten Christians, especially if they've never heard it before, saying, wait a minute, there, there's disagreement here. Uh, how can this uh, be the inspired word of God when so-and-so disagrees with so-and-so over here, all these different variants? And it just kind of gets uh, the unsuspected Christian in a jumbled mess and to begin doubting and then drawing conclusions that aren't warranted uh, based on what we know. But but I thought it might be helpful if you speak to, you know, what argument is Ehrman trying to make by that and you know how 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 you would go about answering it yeah it's it's a very common argument it's an argument that has a lot of rhetorical power i mean as soon as you tell someone that there's 200,000 to 400,000 variants more variants than we have words in the new testament they're thinking oh no it's a lost cause why didn't anyone ever tell me and on and on it goes and it's it's very effective for rattling people's belief in the new testament the problem with the argument is that numbers in and themselves don't really tell you the whole story statistics yeah need to be interpreted, and statistics can be very misleading. Yeah, there's lies, um, and then there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's the Mark Twain quote, which is, of course, very famous for this. And and so, uh, you know, your listeners may be surprised to hear that I actually agree with, 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 with Ehrman on this. I think there's probably at least that many. In fact, a recent study showed there's probably even more sure. than that. Um, but, but there's two considerations that I think temper the significance of that. Uh, one one consideration is just the kind of variants we're talking about. You know, it's not as simple to say we have a lot of variants. The question is, well, what kind? What is the quality? I mean, are they a problem? Do they they keep us from understanding what the text said? And people might be surprised that the vast, vast majority of those variants don't affect the meaning of the text at all and don't really affect our ability to reconstruct what the original text said. And the reason for that is the mass majority of those variants are actually spelling mistakes. Um, spelling errors are very common in, in ancient manuscripts, which should make modern people feel pretty good that and the ancient world, people couldn't spell much better than they can in the modern day. <laughs> and so there's uh, you know, a lot of these spelling errors. There's other inconsequential errors, um, things like the order of words flipped around, um, synonyms being used, um, the, the, the article in Greek is used sometimes and not other times. And so these sorts of things add up. Um, and so first thing to realize is that most of these variants are not significant to the meaning of the text. The other factor, and the second one to mention, is... When people throw out statistics like that, they often don't explain why we know about so many variants. Right. Um, and it has to do with how many manuscripts we have. One of the things that makes the New Testament distinctive is we have so many copies available to us, over 5,500 now and counting. Depends how you count them. Um, and that's more than any document in antiquity by quite a margin. And so we just have more opportunities to learn about more variants. Mm -hmm. um, and so what should be a good thing for Christianity, more copies, actually is used in this argument to be a negative. And so we're sort of victims of our own success here. If we didn't know about 
all these copies, you wouldn't know about all those variants that we could talk about. Sure. We only had five copies of the New Testament. We don't have very few variants, and this would never even be a conversation. So it's a bit of a, a misleading stat. And I think um, if people had all the information, it wouldn't be near so bothersome. Yeah, I think understanding it uh, in its context, so to speak, actually mm-hmm. shows uh, that it's a good thing. It, it, it helps yeah. us recreate the original text. Without all of this, we wouldn't be able to do such a thing. Um, so I'm actually quite pleased about it. But uh, he does claim every once in a while— um, it's weird because on the one hand he'll say he agrees that it doesn't affect any core Christian doctrine or something like that, none of the variants. It's not like in one gospel there's a variant that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead or something like that. Um, but then sometimes he'll say that it will affect the whole meaning of a book, and that seems very outlandish. And when called on to give an example, he often cites, I believe, Hebrews chapter 2, where... Um, there, do you know what I'm referencing here? Yeah, I mean, there, this is there's a dispute about what makes a, a variant significant or a variant mm-hmm. meaningful. Um, and one of the things that often needs to be talked about in this is it, it doesn't really come down to just whether the, the variant happens to change the meaning of the passage or even raise up a difficult theological issue. The question really comes down to whether we know it's original or not. Right. So, for example, take the long ending of Mark. I mean, you have 12 whole verses there. Does that change the meaning of the gospel? Well, yeah, has a tremendous impact. It's twelve verses, but it's only a problem if we didn't know whether it was original or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the consensus now of modern scholars is it's not original, and if you know it's not original, then it's no longer a factor in reconstructing the text. And so, exactly. part, part of the issue is the viability of these variants. Many of them are just not viable, and so whether they impact the text or not is irrelevant. If they're not viable, then they don't play a role. Right. Okay. So it, it's it seems that we have a very good. Um, uh, manuscript history to draw upon here and, and recreate the text, but we don't have the autographs, uh, that is the original writings of uh, the Gospels and the New Testament books. So how, um, w- with how much certainty can we say that we can recreate the original text? Does that make sense? Does the question yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah, without the autographs, how can we say yeah. we have the original text? Well, we don't have the autographs. People raise that as a concern. I think often they confuse the autographs with the original text, which are not the same thing. Okay. You can have the original text without the autographs. Sure. Um, so the autographs are a physical object, whereas the original text can be preserved across a multiplicity of manuscripts. Gotcha. And I yeah, do think sense. we can get very close to the original autographs with a, with enough certainty that it doesn't raise any questions about what we believe. Right. Do we have access to the state of the text in the first century? Well, no, but no, no one has access to texts like that. Actually, when you look at the, 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 the normal way history is done and the normal way we have access to text, the, the, the New Testament stands in a league of its own. So if, if you can't know what the New Testament said, you really can't know what any book in the ancient world said with any certainty. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, that, that we have enough certainty and we have sufficient certainty to be, be confident in what we believe, even if we don't know down to the very last variant what the text said. We have enough to be confident that we've got the basic message of the New Testament. Sure. So I, one way that I like to think about this is with respect to Ehrman's variants and the original question of the original text and the autographs and stuff like that, is it seems to me that whenever he or somebody else wants to claim that the original text would have been way different than what we have now because it was passed, you know, oral tradition was passed down and all this stuff before it ever got there, uh, or the, the manuscripts were passed around and copied, this person copied from that person and so on and so forth. But it 
unless, unless you're willing to make another argument from silence here, that the only thing you could really conclude is that the type of variance that we should expect to find in earlier copies that we don't have access to right now, the only conclusion we could draw is that those var variants would also look like the ones we already have. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. That, and scholars have made this point. So basically, another way to say it is, the level of textual fluidi uh, fluidity in our current manuscript, we would not expect to be any greater than what we we have now in the earlier copies. Why? Because whatever flu fluidity was in the earlier copies would still exist in our current manuscripts. We can right. still see the variants. In other words, you'd have to believe that it was really a crazy text and then someone condensed them down and edited them and had a sort of their own redaction of them mm -hmm. in a way that, that eliminated all these variants. Right. That, that's just too hard to believe. Especially um, without any kind of central authority in the early yeah, church. There's no, yeah. there's no way a, the church could have ever come up with some sort of recension like that. Yeah. So when we look at the variant, the level of variance in our current manuscript tradition, that's the level of fluidity we're dealing with, and we would not have expected the earliest manuscripts to look any different. Yeah, okay. So I think most skeptics that I engage with, and I don't engage on a scholarly level or academic level, but most skeptics that I do engage with, I'm happy to say they usually grant this. Uh, the, the evidence for the, the textual reliability of the Gospels and the New Testament is, is very good. Yeah, um, it's exceptional. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely unprecedented. And but they will then say, but that's not the same thing as the historical reliability. Of course not. And, no. and of course they're right. So yeah. how do we go from saying we have the originals? We'll, we'll grant that to saying what the original records is historically accurate. Yeah, well, that's another conversation. It's a, yeah, it's a big um, conversation. It's a big question. Uh, there's a couple ways to get at that. I mean, if you could come to believe that a book is inspired by God, that is a reason to believe it's historically accurate. So if I think that it's written by apostles who are given the Spirit to speak for God, and I think God's truth, truthful and trustworthy, then I would have a reason to believe the books are reliable historically. But that you can also uh, ascertain that by doing study. So you can take the Gospels and you can start examining them. Do they give us, a, from what we know, an accurate representation of, say, first century Palestine, first century Jewish customs? Uh, topography, geography, use of names, so on. You could ev evaluate those things, and scholars have done that. Uh, most recently, Peter Williams just did a book um, for Cross Crossway on just this point. Um, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels, I believe is the title of the book, where he analyzed it uh, on those grounds. And the Gospels come out exceptionally strong in those areas. Um, they are clearly written by people who knew first century Palestine and knew the historical topogra topographical landscape. And so we have reasons to think they would be believable and trustworthy uh, writings. The other thing I would mention in terms of trustworthiness is just whether they go back to eyewitnesses. You know, yeah. Do I think these books, were they written by someone who was there or at least by someone who talked to someone who was there? That can give you a high degree of assurance that we're dealing with historically reliable texts. And I think the Gospels are in a great position to be eyewitness testimony. Yeah, I think the eyewitness testimony thing is a big part of this. I was just reading. I've been reading for a while through uh, Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which I, I do highly recommend. Um, and, uh, yeah, of course, sometimes eyewitnesses do get things wrong. But in the question, I think just kind of in the question of historical investigation, um, you know, how, do, how, would you, how would you go about that if a skeptic said that to you? Some, well, okay, so they were eyewitnesses. Sometimes eyewitnesses get things wrong. Yeah, well, they do, but they're still your best shot of getting things right. Yeah. Um, and if you want to know what happened in history, what other choice do you have but to listen to an eyewitness? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they could they could play the skeptic card and say, well, I don't believe anybody ever. Um, yeah. No matter who they are, I'm going to never believe an eyewitness because eyewitnesses can be wrong. But they don't use that same standard in other parts of life. When we have a court of law on a trial. We, we listen to eyewitnesses, even though they yeah. could be wrong. Yeah. Um, 
and they trust other people who saw things, even though they could be wrong. Yeah. So what, what you find there is a hyper skepticism and it's a hyper skepticism without warrant. And usually that betrays in somebody a predisposition against the Gospels where you treat them um, more skeptically than you do any other writing and you treat them in a way that's unjustified. And if someone's just willing to listen to eyewitness testimony like they would anywhere else, and I think they'll find the Gospels to be very credible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, again, I'll, uh, I appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your day to do this. For the listeners, we're going to go to the bonus segment. Five more minutes with uh, Dr. Michael J. Kruger. If you want to uh, listen or watch that, just follow the Patreon link in the description below labeled Support Help Me Believe and become a supporter, a patron of the podcast, and you get access to not only that bonus segment, but the bonus segment with all of my past and future interviewees as well. Dr. Kruger, I really appreciate uh, you doing this, sir. It's been a lot of fun, and I do appreciate yep. it. Yeah, great to be with you.